This week on the How To Be 60 podcast, we're joined by former Home Secretary Alan Johnson. He grew up in poverty and was orphaned at 13. But it wasn't until later in life that even he learned the whole story. The three most commonly used words by my mum were, don't tell Alan. So all these things that were going on, the things that my father had done, the half-brothers and sisters that apparently we'd had, that we didn't know about, the terrible things that were inflicted on my mother, don't tell Alan. And I'm wondering how to be 60. It's scaring the shit out of me. Well, would you believe it, everyone? We are into the first week of July. And Mackenzie, as I have now now got to call her because she wants a nickname at the age of 63. That nickname is. It is. Anyway, let's not. We've done that. She's not yet away on holiday, which is a miracle, because, folks, she's just sitting in her back garden smoking those magic mushrooms that she picks up from the park. I wasn't smoking them. They were oyster mushrooms. How do you know? Because I don't know very much, but I know an oyster mushroom when I see it stuck to a tree, a dead tree. And but see when you go blank. Well, listen, just for a wee while. I'm still. Maybe, you do you know, know what? I've made it through to another podcast, so I'm still alive. So I, I know, think I knew. I know. Yeah, but yeah. I just never expected to have a podcast friend who was a stoner at this age. <laughs> okay, you need to be cool. <laughs> One of us needs to be cool. Anyway, I can't slag you off. How rough do I look? My God! You know what? I was actually thinking that a wee <laughs> bit of lippy wouldn't go amiss on you, lady. God, you look like you just run a marathon. Your cheeks are all red, and your hair looks a wee bit sort of stuck to your head. See, it's funny because I was trying to kid myself on that I looked kind of barefaced and youthful. You don't think? No, you look like you've come in late for a meeting and just sat down and thought, Harassed. what have I made it in time? Yeah, it's not very makeup up on a top. You're just a little bit flushed. Do I? Yeah, you've got maybe that drinker's face. <laughs> that's, that's unfair. I do, I do not drink. Mm, I don't drink. Something's going on there. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, the worst thing is, and, and I, I know we're, we talk about age and not, I have started walking with my hands behind my back. Oh. What? The hell is that about? Actually, kind of reminds me of Prince Charles. I know he's not a prince anymore. I quite like that. But what is that about? Do you? Yes, I I do it myself sometimes. It's not just around the garden. Yeah. Do you know what I think it is? Well, because you know how you were telling me, and I can't even believe I'm saying this because we do have Alan Johnson coming up, but I'm going to have to go there. He's a man of the world. His hands behind his back. No, no, it's because of your pendulous breasts. You know how you were telling me last week that you've got a narrow back and pendulous breast and you had to get a new bra? I think that's what I think. I am a 13. Yes, I know. I know. We don't have to go into it. I don't think we need to go into it, but I think you are subconsciously trying oh to hold God, them up. Do you think so? Yeah, because, you know, clearly, I mean, I'm sitting next to you, they are drooping quite a lot. And I think... Maybe not. God, Envy's not a pretty thing. It's <laughs> not a pretty thing. No, and I think subconsciously you are just trying to sort of drag them back up again. I think that is what it is. I mean, because you're going to have to be careful of getting a stoop. My posture is good. No, can I just take your shoulders oh back a bit? God. You're going to get a stoop. Oh, it's all right for you to touch me. If I touch no, you, you're all that that's fine. about it. I'm doing it out of kindness. Do you know what? I think the problem is, you know how you've got into hiking boots and comfy sandals? Yeah, and I love them. I think you're going to need to wear high heels. Just This is my prescription. High heels just for two hours once a week. Oh, God, no thanks. Yes, because then really? tits are up. 
shoulders back. You're never going to walk with your hands behind your back when you're wearing high heels. You never do it. You'll be Shania Twain in no time. I've got absolutely no interest in that. I'd rather do walk it. with my hands behind my back. No, I uh, high heels just once a week for two, for two hours. They kind of put your back. I bet that's how you've got your hip going. No, it's got how nothing to do with anyway. that. It's it's terrible, but it's got nothing to do with high heels. It's good in high heels. Honestly, try that for oh, me. God, just leave it. Right, leave it. Let's move on. Anyway, listen. What's going on? What's going? On? What about your daughter? What about Charlie? Did she get her results yet? Well, no, because lots of the kids at university don't have the results because there's all sorts of disputes going on. Um, but I've seen my my friend Trisha's son got uh, graduated yesterday. Yeah, no, but some of them are graduating and they don't even have their class of degree because of a dispute with the marking. And this has been going on for it's actually been going on for the best part of three years because she's been at uni for three years, and there's been all sorts of little local disputes. Whereas now it's really kind of built up into something, and it. Uh, so she hasn't got a result. So in normal yet. So times, she, she would she have got them? By yes, now, yes, she would have. So I don't know. Maybe. She? Yeah, she's all right. Well, actually, she started an internship. Oh my gosh! Um, so so grown up, isn't it? She asked me to go with her to get work clothes. You know, because obviously all of her stuff is jeans and t-shirts and everything. Like that. Right. And it's a know, proper office then. It's a proper office. So yeah. grown up. Um, and it was so funny. It was like first day at school again. I felt like she was. Five and I was getting a little white shirt oh and my a little grey pleated skirt and all the rest of it. Oh but my God, you didn't choose the clothes for God's no, sake. Of course I didn't. She's twenty-one. Don't be ridiculous. So you I mean, I'm controlling, it. but I'm not that. <laughs> well, we'll yeah. say that again. We went um, half and half. She was very good. Making her pay half of it. Did you? Yeah, she's got to learn the value of bloody money, hasn't she? I see you are so tight. And what? I'm going to be some. Oh, for God's sake, she's a flaming student. Well, but so what? She's not even started earning yet. I think it would be wrong if I paid for everything. Okay. <laughs> All I can say is I'm disappointed. Oh, don't say that. It's the worst thing your parents I'm could ever say. Disappointed. I'm disappointed. You know, it's funny because I've said to you about her being stressed, a stressed head. Oh, my God. I know exactly where she got it from. Yesterday, I was. Have you ever seen House of Games with Richard Osborne? No. No, you don't watch I know who Richard Osborne yeah. is. Well, so, anyway, it's this yeah. thing on BBC Two, right? So, it's puzzles. It's not like a quiz. It's like puzzles, oh lateral my thinking, God, you gotta work things out. anagrams, you know. So I did it yesterday. But it was so depressing because, it, you know, it's just you do five shows in a day. Oh, my God. I mean, I went in at like quarter to eight in the morning. Uh, so I walked along the dressing rooms to see who else was on. And I thought, Jesus, I've got 20 years on everybody here. In fact, I've Googled all of their ages. Uh, 1984, 1989, 1978, they were born. Oh, my God. But that must mean that you'd have so much more common sense than them. No, but they're Our knowledge. Quicker. They're so much quicker mm. because everything was against, not everything, but most of the things were against the buzzer. And by the third show, I was just, I was in bits. because I oh, just, Was it strictly all over again, was it? Well, no, it was worse than strictly because I like to God. think of myself as being reasonably intelligent, but I mean, they're just so much faster. And it's it's a weird thing, isn't it, with your brain? Because like, I would totally accept that a 30-year-old is going to run faster yes, than I am. Yes, yes. You know, yes. Or, or be better in yeah, yeah, yeah. fitness class. But that feeling that your brain is starting to to break down and go slower is just really horrible. Did you sort of shut down? I Were got, you working in I a pair really with anyone? Or was it? No, no, I wasn't. And I actually started to thump the buzzer 
And mentally, internally, I was complaining at the buzzer. I think this buzzer can't be working properly. Mm-hmm. And I was about Dear. to say, I don't Those think that buzzer. Their tools. I know, I know. I know. I know. I was actually going to say out loud, this buzzer isn't working. I thought, oh my God, what a twat you're going to look if you say yes. this. But that's what I wanted to say. But you didn't. Well, there's well, that. I kind of intimated it. Did you lose completely? Did you win? You um, probably can't tell us. It wasn't as bad as I thought, right. but it was just a really depressing feeling. Okay. I knew quite a lot, but I just wasn't able to get it out oh, as quick. Oh, God, I know what you mean. Oh, that's horrible, isn't it? Really, really horrible. The other thing is a lot of them are music clues. And I'm not a music person. I've never been a music person, but also younger people because of technology. Uh, I'm now making excuses for myself. You have actually. All right. Okay. You know about the 80s music or whatnot. Well, they do because too. they've always got bloody earbuds in and music is so accessible. Whereas we used to have to go and listen to music in a you bloody record got... shop. Do you remember going to record shops to listen to a piece of music? You do actually. Yeah, I do. I remember, what was your first single? Oh, no, we're going down the wrong name, but mine was, oh God, you see, this is, I can't remember now. It was. You'd be rubbish on House of Games. I would be. Awful. I would never put myself in for anything like that. The Archies. Ah, uh, 1960. Alan Johnson is going to be listening to this going, I know, I know. He'll be just listening to this saying, what the fuck am I doing on a <laughs> podcast with these two? Oh, my God. Come on, then. Oh, no, he, maybe he'll help me out when he comes on. No. The Archies. Was it 1969? I have no idea. Well, it was. Got to number one. Do you know what mine was? What? Ernie, the fastest milkman in the West. Dear. <laughs> I wouldn't even go public on that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's funny, I really remember going through Edinburgh with my pal Judith and we uh, you go into these little booths and mm-hmm. you could listen to the mm-hmm. music and uh, <laughs> Judith forgot to shut the door. So it was Rolling Stones Miss You. And she was it. singing along. <laughs> she was singing along at the top of her voice. God, with, with the door open, with the headphones on, the entire show. I'll miss you. <laughs> That's brilliant, isn't it? The embarrassment you feel at the age of 16 is like you want to die. Absolutely want to die. Um, anyway, we'll see if uh, Alan Johnson can help. Sugar, sugar. Uh, oh, in fact, what happens above? It just came back to me. Really? This is what happens. Sugar, sugar. Thank you. Well done. Excellent. Oh, that's a shame. I'm sweating now. Alan Jones was really pissed off, actually, because he was going to come in and impress everybody with his fabulous knowledge. I know. He had aspirations to be a pop star when he was a boy. Oh, I read that. Idolised pop Yes. Very young he was, isn't he? 16. Then he got married at 20 and got a job in the post office, and his life went in a completely different direction. You're all about that. Now, listen, we're going to talk to Alan very soon, but uh, I've got our, it's time for our email of the week. Great. So this one is from Cynthia, and I mm-hmm. suppose it for a number of reasons. I'll explain in a minute. So Cynthia, thanks very much for getting in touch, right? So it's, it's a longish one, but mm-hmm. I think it's uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting. So Cynthia says, hi, Bo. She's emailing and says she enjoys the podcast. Uh, she says, I'm playing catch up, uh, but I am really enjoying it. I'm 62. I never worried about turning 60 because I'm young at heart, love life, my kids, my grandkids and work. Life was great until I found out last year that my husband was texting women asking to meet up with them. After many rows, we went for counselling. After the first session, I found out that two days later, he texted another woman asking her to meet him. So that was it. I showed him the door. Thankfully, uh, he went, we're now divorcing. I get many phone calls and text messages from him saying he still loves me, wants me to get back, but the trust has well and truly Mm -hmm. gone and there is no going back for me. Uh, she says, this last year has aged me. Uh, I feel my uh, I feel my age. He's knocked the stuffing out of me, but 
I am of a generation where I've just got to dust myself off and get on with it, mm. which I have done. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I love being on my own. I love waking up alone, no mess in the house or shopping for his favorite food, etc. I don't feel lonely at all. I've got the best dog for company. Mm. I've got best friends who've taken me under their wings with lunch, tea dates, holidays together, walks, coffee. They are a tonic and my children are my rock. Should I've got no plans to retire yet. Um, work gives me a purpose to get up and get busy. It helps that I do love my job. Mm -hmm. And she says, I would never have dreamt that at this age I'd be getting divorced. Oh, yeah. we're planning, we were planning our retirement together. But that's life, God. as they say. And I chose that for a number of reasons. One, it's a very similar story to Jackie Smith, isn't it? Former Home Secretary, coincidentally, predecessor of Alan. Yes, yes. But also, I'm just thinking, you know, Cynthia and indeed Jackie Smith have dusted themselves off. They've got on, you know, created a new life themselves, as Cynthia says. Mm -hmm. um, not easy, I'm sure. Um, it's not at that age. It's not at any age. It's not. It's not. But Alan's mum was from an earlier generation of women who often got stuck in bad relationships mm -hmm. and they couldn't get out. <clears throat> you know, Shane Rich's mum, mm -hmm. yes, he described yes. the situation in, in his house and, and that was the same. Yeah. Um, so I just thought I might strike a chord with that one. I don't yeah. Know. God, but anyway, Cynthia, hard. listen, thank you very much for getting in touch. I really I really appreciate your, your honesty. Yeah, it's lovely to think that you've got that support structure there and, and you are... Great friends, good job, a job that she enjoys. Yeah. That's important as well. Yeah. And a hell of a lot better and than shopping for the favourite foods of somebody who oh God. doesn't respect oh, we, you. Oh, horrible. Horrible. Anyway, the email address is, that is our email of the week. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Cynthia. The email address is podcast at htb60.com. And we'll speak to Alan after this. Hi, Alan. I hope that wasn't too painful. Oh, it was great. I learned such a lot um, about <laughs> things I didn't expect to learn about. <laughs> I'll bet you didn't. <laughs> like what? <laughs> like Do you tell, to, Alan? Like, like walking with your hands behind your back. Um, yeah. I'll talk to my wife when she gets home. Well, you are 72 and you are living the life of a successful writer. You've got two thrillers out. I think you've got another one yet to come. Yeah, 73. 73, actually. Oh, you're 73? Thanks for your honesty. And then, of course, you had your four memoirs, uh, you know, critically acclaimed. But can we go back to when you were 60, around about that age? Labour government coming to a bit of a tortured end at that stage. Your second marriage also coming to an end <clears throat> around that stage. What was life like then? Well, that was traumatic to be uh, rejected by the electorate. So I was um, Home Secretary. I'd been a minister for 11 years, being run around by a government car service. And although you should never, a very good politician called Dawn Perolo, who I was PPS to, advised me never to spend that government. You get a different bit of money coming in as a government minister. You get a different salary. She said, never depend on it because it could be gone overnight, either because the prime minister gets sick of you or because the electorate did. Uh, and I took her advice, but nevertheless, it did feel, you know, I spent all my time in parliament on the government benches. Suddenly I was on the opposition benches and it's rather depressing. I mean, Tony Blair once said the difference is in government, you get up and think, what am I going to do today? And in opposition, you get up and think, what am I going to say today? Uh, you have no power in opposition. So that was quite depressing. But then on the other hand, I'd not picked up a guitar for all the time I'd been in Parliament, certainly all the time I'd been a minister. 
mainly because I had a 12 string guitar and it gets out of tune very quickly. I remember this almost a couple of days after losing the general election. I went to a music shop and bought a six string Yamaha and decided, you know, I'm going to get back onto playing the guitar. Plus, that's about when the deal was done for me to write this boy. So it was published in 10 years ago in 2013, but it must have been about that time that it was commissioned. So I had something to move on to and something really exciting because I'd always wanted to be a writer. So, it, you know, I got over the, uh, the trauma of it quite quickly. So were you making plans in your head then for the next stage in your life? I mean, obviously, we, we see the politicians, but what was Alan the person thinking at that stage? Well, funny enough, 60 had always been a kind of a focus because I became a postman when I was 18. I got married when I was 18, by the way, not when I was 20. I had three oh, kids. Oh, sorry. Did you? But when I was 18, I got married and I joined the post office. I joined the post office first, then got married. And when you joined the post office, which was then civil service, your retirement age was 60 and everything mm. was focused on 60. And then when I became a full-time union officer, once again, you had no say in this. You didn't, it wasn't a case of, oh, let's go back to the membership and see if they want to re-elect me. Your job was finished. It was in your rule book at 60. Mm. So I'd always seen this 60 coming up over the horizon. Of course, by that time I was an MP, which has no real retirement age unless uh, the electorate decides to give you one. So, for instance, my post office pension got paid out when I was 60. It, you know, that's one of the great advantages, which lots of kids won't have today, an index-linked mm. pension, payable not when you're 65, which when the state pension is paid, but when you were 60. Uh, that's why I was focused on it, but I didn't expect to move on to something else, really. You know, I was too old to be a pop star, which is what I always wanted to be. Although, <laughs> looking at the age of some of the pop stars today, maybe I should give up on that. I can't tell you how exciting it was to have this chance of a book, but it was only going to be a childhood memoir finished when I was 18. You know, there's nothing after that. It was only because of how well it was received that there was pressure to kind of carry on with the story, so hence the other memoirs. But I think if I hadn't have had the book to sit down and start thinking about and getting excited about, it might have been quite depressing. I saw so many men in the post office, it was mainly men I worked with for my years as a postman, who were so worried about retirement, who dreaded the day when they had to retire. In fact, the retirement age was 60 in the post office, but you could stay on it, you were fit and efficient, and most of the guys I knew applied to stay on. They couldn't face up to retirement. I mean, in one sense, you can understand it because a job gives you, you know, you're defined by your work. But on the other hand, the fear of not having anything to do and not knowing how you're going to fill your days strikes me as being really, which is why there's so much loneliness as well amongst older people these mm -hmm. days. So thankfully, I didn't have that to worry about. Yeah, well, you know, some kind of sense of purpose. And, and you're right. And I think generalizing the female experience is often different from the male because I think men do probably invest more of their sense of self-worth in their occupation. That's where they get their, their status from. Would you agree? I would agree. Yeah. Of course, for my mother, she wouldn't have ever have contemplated divorce. A single woman back then in the 50s, but thankfully, my father, who was a feckless drunk who knocked her about he went ran off with the barmaid from the lads of the village pub 
And my mother was still trying to find him. She had to try and track him down first of all to try and get some money out of him. There was no child support agency then. The law was very different. You had to go to court to get a divorce. But even then, she didn't tell any of her sisters. She was from Liverpool. She had loads of family up in Liverpool. She didn't tell them about it because she felt ashamed, I think, Mm -hmm. that the marriage hadn't worked. It was always the woman's fault. Both of you are too young for this, but... There's an, coron- <laughs> <laughs> an old Coronation Street episode where Ina Sharples is rowing with Elsie Tanner. And Ina Sharples is shouting to Elsie Tanner across Coronation Street, you couldn't even keep your man. And, you know, I felt that for my mother because it was always the woman's fault. And so as a young boy, what did that look like to you? Oh, God, me and my sister, who very much the hit heroine of uh, this boy, who was just two, about two and a half years older than me. But we still say now it's the happiest day of our lives when our father walked out. It's great to have two parents, but if one of them is beating up the other parent and you're frightened of him and he's you know, a dark character in your life, when he went, we were overjoyed. We still call it one of the happiest days of our life. We couldn't understand why our mother, Lily, who has, as I you know, give her her, proper name, why she was so upset, why she was sitting crying at the kitchen table. You know, and Linda got a very close relationship with her. I was saying, why are you crying? You know, he's gone. You've got rid of him. But my mum realised, of course, this wasn't the end of the hard times. This was the start of a whole new set of problems for her. She had to try and find him and all that. And she loved him and he left her. But, you know, the other thing my mother did is when she did track him down, she cleaned for all these people around the posh bit. We were in the slums of North Kensington, but down the other end of Labra Grove, Portobello Road, was Holland Park and these plush areas, Notting Hill Gate. She had about six or seven jobs, and she had a mitral stenosis. She had a bad heart, so she shouldn't have been doing these jobs. But she would work and work and work, and she cleaned for a family, Mrs. Den. D-E-H-N, who had three sons. One of them was a journalist. One of them was a lawyer. I forget what the other one, three professionals, and they shared a flat. Mrs. Den asked Lily, my mum, will you clean for them as well? And she did. And one day they were all out of the house. She thought she was on her own. She was sort of ill got on top of her, and she sat on the bed and started to cry. Unbeknown to her, one of the Den brothers had come back in. He asked her what the matter was. He was a reporter for the Kensington News or something, and she told him, and he said, get me a photograph of him, and she got a photograph. And what he did, she knew that he'd run off with the barmaid from this pub called The Lads of the Village. No one there would help her at all. She went with my sister to the pub, nothing to do with us, domestic matter. We don't know, Vera was her name. We don't know where she's gone to. Well, he rang the pub, this very posh man, Mr. Ten, and said, uh, can I speak to, uh, to Vera? And the uh, lad on the pub said, no, she's not here. He said, well, that's a shame because I'm from an insurance company. She's been left a lot of money and we can't tra- trace where she is, yeah? Anyway, the, he came back and gave her the address, which was someplace in Dulwich. Young journalist, Mr. Den, went to the house knocked on the door. It was, it was multi-occupied, but he saw Johnson on a thing. Down came my father. He said, the reporter said, you're Stephen Arthur Johnson. And my dad said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, here's a photograph, and you look remarkably like him. 
So they'd nabbed him. And his brother, the lawyer, pro bono, took the case to court, which was remarkable act of generosity. Yeah. And I think he had to pay something like six pounds, 10 shillings. So much for me, so much for Linda, so much for my mum. Of course, he stopped paying it after. So, I mean, we had to, it was a terrible problem because he just he gave up and never paid anything. But the purpose of this story is me telling you, my mother always wanted me, now we tracked him down, to go with her to see him because she said, you've got to have a father. I said, well, yeah. I was never going to do that. But for her to sit there with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your mum died in surgery, didn't she, when you were 13? Linda, your sister, was, was 16. And as you say, Linda's very much the heroine of that part of the story. Yeah, so I was 13. Linda was just turned 16. And the age of majority then was 21. It hadn't come down to 18. So when my mum died, I said to Linda, what do we do? We were living in this rather less squalid place in, in Warmer Road, in just about where Grenfell Tower is uh, or was. And into our life came Mr. Pepper, uh, which sounds like someone from sort of families snaps that old game used to play, the card game. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a social worker. And Mr. Pepper came into our two squalid rooms in Warmer Road and he made this little presentation. He said, Alan, I found you a foster parents near your school in Chelsea. Linda left school, trained to be a nursery nurse. You can go to Dr. Bernardo's at Barking. There are big headquarters there. They'll train you to be a nursery nurse. You can carry on your training and you can live in there as well. And I think poor old Mr. Pepper, who turned out to be a hero, by the way, but it didn't start well. I think he was waiting for a round of applause. Instead of that, my sister tore into it, finger wagging in his face. 16 years of age. Yeah. And on here. So he went away with this Linda shaped flea in his ear. She said, You're not going to split us up. And poor old Mr. Pepper managed to convince the council to give us a place. And we were there till 66. So we were there for three years. And then Linda got married to a lovely guy and moved to what he had a, he put a down payment on a semi detached in Watford. He had a three bedroom. She wanted me to go there. I said, I'm not moving to the north. You know, I'm not going to Watford. So I moved back into Diggs in North Kensington, my sister, you know, and that was the end of our time together. So by then I was 16 playing in a band. I thought I was going to be a big rock star. Linda was was married. But we got through that time. If we'd a bit, we always say this. I was with my sister last year. She was over from Australia. That one decision by someone in authority who listened, I mean, not that Mr. Pepper could help but listen to Linda, but who listened. And instead of just saying, to, which he could have done, look, you know, I'm a big adult here. I understand these things. You don't. We're just a kid. That was the biggest contribution that was made to our happiness because we're fine. I mean, my mother had a hard life. We've had a wonderful life, but it wouldn't have been as wonderful if it hadn't been for Mr. Pepper. I've heard you say that before, that you've had a charmed life. And obviously, hearing that story that you've just told, that's kind of difficult to work out. Why do you think you've had a charmed life? Oh, crikey, the whole generation. I mean, those slums, by and large, were swept away. I know there's still bad housing, but by and large, by the 60s, that, you know, that kind of, those living standards had gone. Here was I, I left school at 15, but there were thousands of jobs to walk into, I'd learned to play the guitar courtesy of Burt Whedon's play in a day. 
we should be prosecuting under the Trace Description Act. But I taught myself, <laughs> you know, I was at school at Chelsea on the King's Road, for Christ's sake, in the 60s. I made a record when I was 16 with the band called The Area. Everything looked great. And actually, you know, joining the post office, I was really, you know, there was a job for life there. I kept having our gear nicked. The other band I was with, The Inbetweens, was really good, semi-professional, about to make a record, and all our gear got nicked. But then things fell into place. Yeah, but the other side of that, Alan, is that you had an abusive wastrel for a father um, and you were orphaned at 13. Yeah, but I didn't have to live with that wastrel. Fortunately, he went, uh, you know, and I'd have been much unhappier if he hadn't left. I'd have been, you know, a very unhappy childhood. It wasn't that. I mean, my mum was a kind of funny, petite scouser. There was always laughter. And yes, of course, that was sad to lose. Of course, that was, you know, devastating but there was linda you know these two strong women that i was fortunate enough the three most commonly used words by my mum were don't tell alan so all these things that were going on the things that my father had done the half brothers and sisters that apparently we'd had that we didn't know about the terrible things that were inflicted on my mother don't tell alan now that you're the age you are and you're on your third marriage, you know, you grow up, you know that shit happens. Do you feel any sympathy for your dad? Do you go back over it all and think, well, God, actually? Mm. No, I think, you know, he didn't care much about us and we didn't care much about him. It's the simple truth. And I'm sorry about that, but it sometimes happens in families. I don't think there's much hatred in, in Linda. There's quite a bit in me just for, you know, those memories. It's like being on a psychiatrist's couch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I, I do feel like that sometimes. You know, you're a big boy now. You've been married. Your relationships break down. It was the cruelty, the cruelty. Mm. I mean, it was even cruel to our dog, the thing he did to because he couldn't stand the kind of rivalry when my mum got a dog for us and he would come home drunk and be really cruel to the dog. He was so cruel. He, yeah, there was such a horrible side to him that um, I'm afraid, no. So where did you learn to be... A man, a dad, a husband, because you, your dad was a cruel man, as you've described. Did, I mean, we spoke to Shane Ritchie about this, and he was—he had a fear in him that he would turn out to be like his dad. Yeah, a bit of that. But, I mean, perhaps Shane said the same thing. You know what not to do. You know how you don't want to be. You know, I'm not, I was no saint. I used to go out for a pint on a Friday night with the guys from the post office and all that. But you know, you know that that's, you, you don't do what my, my father did. I mean, he had this um, musical G. I mean, he was a pianist. That's how he met. He was a pub pianist. And he kind of passed a little grain of that down in my DNA and Linda's DNA. So I suppose we're grateful for that. But you kind of knew what not to do. Plus, it was a different age and different times. But I don't think you learn it. Do you? I mean, you know, when Emma was born, my daughter in 1968, I wasn't allowed anywhere near the hospital. Never mind, can you get into the maternity ward to be with your wife when she's giving birth to your child? I mean, you just were told to keep away. So there wasn't much of a kind of help from society to help you be a good father in those days, but then you pick it up. Um, so I've just, I'm, my youngest son is just leaving. I was hearing you say about your daughter at university. My youngest son's at Lancaster and just about to get his degree if someone bothers to mark it. Mm. So I'm a lot better now with him than I would have been with my eldest kids, you know, where I was so young 
first of all, Linda used to come to my open days at school before I left school. And, you know, she was old enough to be the, there was a girl's school next door, a sixth former, but she would talk to all my teachers and then come and tell me off if I wasn't doing enough at maths and all that. When I went to my kids' schools, you know, because I was so young, Natalie was born when I was 16, Emma when I was 18, people used to, you know, think I was their brother or something. So you kind of, at least with Oliver, now now they think I'm his grandfather, I can't (laughs) win. (laughs) So how would you like to think that your kids would remember you, given your memories of your own dad? His fondness, I hope, you know, that they'd miss me. Being close in ages as well like that, you know, it's quite, yeah, I have a good relationship with my with my kids. Yeah, just that. And that, that you know, remembering the good times and laughs. I mean, we never went on holiday with my father. My mum never left this country. She never went anywhere. But where we've had holidays and there's photographs and all that and you know, the fun that you've had together. Remember that? Mm. And it was all a long time ago, all that bit. And that's never really been as we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about it in politics. The last thing I wanted in politics was to have this kind of Orphan Allen kind of story thing around as if I was doing it for, you know, just to get a backstory in the Labour Party or whatever. So it was only when the book came out and then telling the whole story that I think my kids understood, you know, the background and the background of so many other. I mean, I had loads of people write to me with their own memories. They've read this boy and it struck a chord or they've asked, you know, I want to write my story. How do you do it? Um, the most awful stories. And that makes me think how fortunate I was. I mean, he never, he did a lot of things, but he never abuses. And he never hit my mum. He never hit us. You know, you know I had so many stories of the way kids were treated. People think that, you know, those days were time of peaceful innocence, the 50s and all that. It wasn't. It's just that no one was shining a light on it. And there mm. wasn't a thing. The police weren't interested in domestic violence. So how is life now? Oh, wonderful. Brilliant. Good. I mean, you talked about the divorce, but there was also then the marriage at 65. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, you know, now the next novel's uh, just finishing it off for next March. I am an agony uncle, by the way. On I Sun know Mag- that. Sun With magazine. Saga. So your, your problem with high heels and, you know, <laughs> you've written to me. Well, I know what advice I'd give you now. Well, yeah. what kind of an answer would I have got? Yeah, uh, sit up straight and put your shoulders back and wear high heels. Exactly. <laughs> See? Yeah. Wear high heels. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. It's good for the. So I do that. I do a bit of telly. Up against loose women as well. In, it's a uh, tough slot. <laughs> Steph's pack lunch on, on Channel 4 Do that twice a week Wonderful. No, You don't miss politics or do you? Not at all, no, not at all I'm still interested in it and all that Of course, and I'm still a party member I didn't, many of my Friends, including my wife Left uh, because of Corbyn uh, But, you know, that, that period's over now And, you know, you can get out and do things We're off to Florence on Saturday I mean, you know, it's a kind of life that mm. You know, my mother would never have imagined. And uh, I, uh, the fortune of the baby boomer generation, uh, you're, I don't know whether you're still, no, you're not, are you? You're not baby boomer. We boomers. boomed and bust. You bo- <laughs> well, we've heard well she's about the you. bust and the boom. We've heard enough about you, bust, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, well, we are a fortunate generation, no doubt about that. You probably talked to death about it as well. But um, 
I hear that you were almost sick as you state for penis. Tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, it's an absolute true story. So I was, um, it was after the 2005 general election. I was the Secretary of State at the Department of Work and Pensions. Prime Minister rang me on a Saturday. Election was on Thursday. He rang me on a Saturday morning. Alan, I'd like you to move departments. I'd like you to go back to the DTI, where I've been a junior minister, Department for Trade and Industry. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. He said, uh, oh, we're changing the name. He said, mm-hmm. uh, I said, oh, that's a shame. What are you changing it to? Tony said, I can't from life of me remember, but your principal private secretary will give you a call tomorrow. He'll tell you. So the pr- next day, the principal private secretary, Matthew, rings me. We have a little chat about priorities and all that. And I'm holding a handline here, a landline mm-hmm. phone, as you did, behind the front door with a notepad and a pen. I said, Matthew, Prime Minister said you're changing the name of the department, but he couldn't remember what we were changing it to. What is it? He said, it's the Department of Productivity, I put P, Energy, which in government is a big E and a small N, Industry, and Science. <laughs> I said, but that makes me the Secretary of State for penis. And I swear he said, yes, minister. <laughs> yes, minister. Could have been an episode. Uh, but anyway, I, I, I complained to Tony on the following Wednesday. I said, what a ridiculous name is this? And fortunately, I've got it changed back again. <laughs> it's now something else. It's business. But for a little while, three days, I was the Secretary of State for penis. <laughs> well, Lovely the one it. little thing I have to ask you is, and I, honestly, this is almost not a political question, but I know it is. But with a bit of distance that you now have, you're a writer, you're not a, a politician. Boris Johnson is clearly, well, I wouldn't call him the man of the moment, but a person of interest, shall we say. What do you make of him? When you see him, you must just get to sit sometimes and think. And I'm not asking you, we know your politics are very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just what do you make of him? Uh, well, I've always made of him. I've known him for a long time, you know, in various guises. He was a, uh, came into Parliament when I was in Parliament. He was London Mayor when I was Home Secretary, which meant we had to jointly appoint various commissioners in, in the Met. And I remember him, I was walking along one night and he was on a bike, Alan, Alan, and he was cycling. I was walking from a restaurant in the middle of London. He was cycling past no conservatives who knew him, including very renowned conservatives like Simon Effer, his editor at the Daily Telegraph, Max Hastings, who was his editor at some another newspaper, Andrew Neil, my old pal from this week, we used to do for many years on the telly, who of course, knew him from The Spectator. They all said the same thing. He is totally, totally untrustworthy and a total organisational mess and should never near let him anywhere near leadership. That's what, when I left Parliament in 2017, all the Tories I used to speak to were saying, you don't think you're mad enough to let Boris, uh, you know, become leader of, the load of, uh, leader of the Conservative Party. Well, they did, and... Anyone who knew him could see how it was going to end. Chaotic. I mean, as organised as a spaghetti bolognese. That whatever that story was about, someone who looked in his car and saw all the kind of parking tickets thrown around, and bits of this, and you know, fish and chip paper or whatever, or burger boxes. That's that's his that's his mind. That's the way he works. But could you see a likability, a charisma, or something? Yes, I could see a likability. Charisma's a funny, it's hard to define, but. I could see a likability in the sense that he always wanted to be pally and have a little kind of joke and all that. But I couldn't see for the life of me 
a senior minister. I mean, he was the most useless foreign secretary this country's ever had. But the likability thing, I suppose if you were going to get locked in a lift with someone in parliament, you know, you wanted to entertain you for <laughs> two hours before the, <laughs> well, they came and rescued you, 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 you wouldn't mind it being Boris. Yeah. Well, I don't know if that's a competition that anyone really wants to win. <laughs> um, big six or bingo, Karen? Yeah, this is my, this is my little bit. So, right. I'd like you to choose a number between 1 and 60. 52. Oh, ever told someone you loved them when you didn't? Truth. Oh. Well, that's a yes then. Oh, no. No, I'm going to you say no. You just said that because I said that's a yes then. No, I'll definitely say no because there was a girl at the Hammersmith Pally, Stephanie Bates, when <laughs> I was 15, but I don't think I told her I loved her. I did. But I didn't tell her it. Oh, well, so the it's way, the other way around, isn't it? It's the other way about. Yeah, yeah, I, know. yeah. I love yeah. the way you remember everyone's names. I can't remember anyone's names. You remember no. everyone's names. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, well, once you bring it down, it sticks there. Yeah, your brain Ste- must be as fast as ever. Yeah. Stephanie Bates, I believe, is in one of the memoirs. Maybe. All right. Maybe, okay. Maybe, yeah. Right. So I'll not pick you up on the fact that you got it the other way about. Okay, another number, please. Twelve. Twelve. Right. Are you at war with parts of your body? Yeah. Yeah. I know you you, you can see me on here because we're doing it over Zoom and you see almost the perfect torso, don't you? I mean, there's, well, you know, we do. We, do we were just um, seeing that. But uh, yeah, keeping my waist to 36 is a constant struggle. 36. What would you want it to be? Oh, you're happy with 36? Well, I'd probably want it to be 34. What pushes it up? Wine. Have I stopped drinking and carbs and all the usual stuff? Bread. I've just been out for a cycle ride before uh, before doing this, so I get a bit of exercising, but but it slips back. You know. Does it still bother you the way you look? Yeah, I was a mod, and when you were a West London mod, you you'll always be. Yeah, to take care of yourself. Yeah, once a mod, always a mod. That's absolutely true. Yes. You look good. Here we are. Well, listen, Alan, thank you so much for spending time with us. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Yeah. It's nice to be on the psychiatrist's couch with you. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. are welcome. That's it for this week. Me, Karen, and her pendulous breasts will be back next week with Fame Academy voice coach Carrie Grant and the remarkable story of her very modern family. And if you would like to see Karen's pendulous breasts in real life, We are doing three shows at the Edinburgh Fringe, the 9th, 10th and 11th of August. Tickets from the Fringe website or the Gilded Balloon website.